to the Materialist Podcast, mini episode number nine. So as you can probably tell, this is not, in fact, Nigel Rudolph, your regular mini episode host. But maybe if I drop my voice real low, I can get a bit closer to Nigel's range. I don't know. <laughs> no, that didn't sound like Nigel at all. I can't do a Nigel impersonation. Anyway, it's me, Becky O'Sullivan, co-host of the Materialist Podcast. But why am I here? Well, for the final installment of Nigel's solo cast mini-episode series, What's on Nigel's Shelf? We decided to flip the script a little and focus on some of the beautiful ceramic objects Nigel has made that have ended up on other people's shelves, including mine. I've got a lot of Nigel pots in my house, <laughs> as you'll find out. So anyway, for those of you who just found this mini-series, the purpose of these episodes is to investigate a little deeper into the material culture that Nigel surrounds himself with in his home during this time of social distancing and quarantine. If you haven't heard the rest of the series yet, definitely check out the previous episodes. There's eight other mini episodes for some wonderful discussions Nigel had with friends and fellow makers across the country about their motivations for making functional pottery. Some of the stories behind the work they make, and of course, sticking with the main theme of the materialist podcast continuing to explore the eternal question, do objects have agency? So let's dive right into my conversation with Nigel. <laughs> Thanks, Becky, for having me on the podcast today. My name is Nigel Rudolph, Public Archaeology Coordinator at FPAN Central. I am a potter. And I'm also the co-host of the Materialist Podcast. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for chatting with me on this episode. You're welcome. I'm glad. I'm glad you're here, Nigel. I've been waiting to finally have you on yeah. the Materialist Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So it's been so much. It's been really fun to um, to hear all these like many episodes that you've been doing some of the stories behind the things that I've like seen in your house when I have been there many times and you told me about some of them but it was really cool to get to hear the artists who actually made those cups or those pieces that you have so it's been pretty neat it's been fun doing it too for those same reasons so hearing those a lot of those stories of things that I, I didn't know about or if I did I've forgotten <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's been fun so today we're going to flip the script and I'm going to interview you, <laughs> which is appropriate because I actually have many pieces that you have made in my house. You do. So it is appropriate. I have collected them all around me right now. Oh my goodness. Look at that beer bottle. That's solid. That's a classic. <laughs> Like, Nigel, this is your life. Wow, that is super old. Oh, this one we actually used today bottle. when we were had dinner, so it still has some, like, olive oil <laughs> in it or whatever, so I won't move it too much. Look at that. Those are all barns. What? The carvings, they're all barns. Barns? Yeah, like barn representations. Really? Abstracted barns. Is that what that's supposed to, like, oh, I didn't yeah. know that. 
Okay, we'll, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. <laughs> and I couldn't bring it, but even the pulls on the cabinets in our kitchen are made by Nigel. That is the level of Nigel uh, artwork that I grounded. interact with on a daily basis. It's like I'm haunting you with material. No, just like <laughs> constant Nigel reminders everywhere. I'm sorry. When you put it like that, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> one of the things that I thought was kind of cool that you talked about with a lot of the, the people that, that you spoke to that kind of came through is this idea that Chris said, Chris Pickett said that the different cups are like portals to different experiences or different friends. Hmm. And it kind of made me think about like the reason that you did this kind of mini little mini podcast in a way is it kind of gave you a reason to talk to all these people that you really care about when you've been in isolation all this time. And that like the, the pots that they made are this connection that you have to these people that you care about that are around you all the time. Yeah, totally agree. Chris said some profound in that, that episode, actually. And that was def- definitely one of them. That's definitely, and I think it's the word portal that kind of, yeah, that really said it. But totally, yeah, it was a great opportunity for me to, to speak to some of these folks. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I acquire work from people that I admire as like human beings <laughs> is because I know that that piece that object will become a portal and I'll think about them when I use it and think about those experiences. Like I'm not going to get a pot from somebody that's an asshole. I was going to say, <laughs> if someone's like a really good potter, but you super hate them, you're just like, no. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> there are people that do that, you know, but I mean, I mean man. it's all about the, the humans behind the work for me. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So why did you first decide to, to make pottery. <laughs> I was asking Jeff about, I was like, do you remember when Nigel first, you know, like when did he start taking like any pottery classes when you were in college or what was his like early work? What did it look like? And that kind of thing. And he said he remembered that you used to make these big, more like sculptural things and you had some around like your apartment or your, where you lived in like Pensacola. Mm-hmm. Um, so not like so much like functional things, I guess. But so what kind of inspired you to get into ceramics and especially to get into making functional work? So <laughs> I first started making pots at MCC yeah, um, or whatever. What's it called now? SCF. SCF, yeah. And without trying to be clever, I literally started making pipes. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first functional thing I made was pipes. But then, yeah, I was, I was definitely more interested in sculpture because of what the kind of art that I was looking at to begin with. And I didn't really start making like functional pottery till I got to to UF here in Gainesville for my second bachelor's degree Mm -hmm. um, in fine arts ceramics was that's when basically the guy I interviewed, Matt Long was like, what what are you doing making sculpture, man? Like make pottery. And so I was like, okay, I'll make pottery. And (laughs) so I did that and that's, I haven't gone back to sculpture. Yeah. I guess for someone who's not like an artist, it's, you know, hard to 
understand like the kind of dichotomy you know you have some people that make you know more like sculptural like you know art objects and then you mm -hmm. also have artists who make these functional like everyday objects and that there's it seems like there's like this really not like a break but there's a big difference between the people who make like one or the other sort of a thing mm -hmm. Well, and I think another great thing that Chris said in the interview was that even sculptures that just sit are serving a function, right? They're functional, mm -hmm. but just not utilitarian. And so the sculpture that I was making when I was at UWF in Pensacola, when I was roommates with Jeff, they were really influenced by like Peruvian textiles and old yeah. Peruvian ceramics and just being real literal and just ripping off designs and things like that but on clay and making these wall hangings and uh things with spikes on them and green peppers it's like i don't even know what i was thinking it's a process you know you yeah. have to find your like <laughs> i don't know what i was trying to say it's like a green pepper with a spike coming out of it and i don't i don't know well, your but, work is still very influenced by like peruvian themes and yeah, definitely. Um, those sorts of influences yeah definitely but there is a rift in ceramics between sculpture and pottery in fact pottery is still kind of frowned on in a lot of ways and in the rift between art what is considered art and what is considered craft it's a huge rift in the ceramics world between art and craft and it's like something that's argued on endlessly and it's kind of crazy because the people that see don't see pottery as art or don't see any craft as like that. It doesn't have the ability to be high art, you know, but yeah, it's one of those, one of those endless, endless arguments, but I disagree. I think craft can be art. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I guess, I don't know, whenever I, any kind of thing where you have like a rift like that, I'm always like, okay, is it because like it's more women who make, at the craft side and it's like men who do like the high art side and that's why this is like valued more than this other one yeah i don't know i don't know enough about the history of art ceramics to really really address that but i know that when the kind of art ceramic world took off here in the united states it was through like functional pottery took off um it was through men men were the potters um mm -hmm. men coming from japan meeting with other men here in the the midwest and minnesota and particular guy by the name of shoji hamada and he brought traditional japanese functional ceramic world like brought that world to the united states mm -hmm. um so yeah i don't know like gender wise um but there was also uh female potters you know that were that were working it, it, throughout the United States in the 1800s, even, you know, like in, in Bradenton, actually. Yeah, that's true. There was that um, pottery that was just up the road. Mm -hmm. um, so speaking of Bradenton, so like I said, you know, obviously your work, very influenced by, um, you know, like Peruvian heritage from your mother's side mm -hmm. and um, a lot of things like that we'll talk about more. But what about the place you grew up? Do you see any, is there any influence that you take from Bradenton or from just Florida in general that makes its way into your work? Definitely Florida. But, you know, when I try to think about specifically what about Florida I was referencing, it was nothing until I got 
into Florida prehistoric pottery. And so that became a huge influence. It wasn't until mm-hmm. much later. But no, nothing really specifically. I wish I could say that it was something. Now, something that I talked about in one of my interviews with Matt Long, I think it was my second interview, talking about the effects of soda firing mm-hmm. and, and trying to mimic the like the sun setting over the Gulf on Anna Maria Island and how it's all these different colors and oranges and yellows and pinks and, um, and trying to find that and achieve that in the soda firing process. So I would say that would be kind of the only real direct influence to the work I was making. But really, I was making work that was really influenced by stuff that was being done in the Northeast, like German salt glaze stoneware, traditional German stoneware work, traditional American stoneware work that was being done in Appalachia and up in the Northeast and putting sort of Florida iconography on those pots. Like, mm-hmm trying to reference Florida really literally, like I used to put the state of Florida on ceramic jugs. Yeah, Jeff has one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Florida jugs. Um, Never see you again. When I was listening to your conversation with Mario, like when he was talking about his influences and talking about like the symbols and the pottery itself as this kind of like language and that the objects that he makes are in this kind of juxtaposition to the European culture that he was surrounded with. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, he is trying to make people aware of the indigenous kind of like Colombian culture that he, you know, is a part of as Mm -hmm. well. Um, I don't know. I just kind of, it made me think about you because you grew up in Bradenton, which is like the mm-hmm. most southern white <laughs> town ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you grew up there with this, you know, different background and different history. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Peru is a big part of like the, my entry even to making ceramics. Really early on, I was, I had already started doing pottery, but. I was probably around 19. We went to Peru and um, we went to this traditional uh, potter studio in Nazca, um, mm-hmm. where the Nazca lines are. And we got to see how he was working and it sort of blew my mind. And so I came back and started making like stirrup spout vessels, mm-hmm. um, things like that with uh, very traditional Peruvian iconography and and carvings and symbols, sort of my own twist on those symbols, but still pretty directly influenced from that. But then it took me a long time to kind of recognize that I'm not like 100% Peruvian, right? That's only 50%. And so there's this whole other world that I, I wanted to start bringing into my artwork. One of the things I really like about your work so much is I mean, you know, the design is cool that you, the carvings and the design that you have on there, but the fabric of the vessel, like the, the stoneware, like I love salt glaze stoneware um, and, and those sorts of the things because it is sub, like it's very Southern to mm-hmm. me. Like that's, you know, very like Southern material and even the forms that, I mean, that you make. So it's just this cool kind of mashup. Um, that you see that's very Southern, but also has this other kind of quality to it. 
Yeah, and I still do that now. I think a lot of, most of the pots that I make now are very American style um, ceramics and, you know, influenced by Appalachian style. Like I still make whiskey jugs and things like that. Mm. But, but now the surfaces, the surfaces have always been where I'm expressing those other cultures. And now it's like pre-contact Florida Native American designs. And so sort of that warped into it's like pre-contact Peruvian designs, but still on top of these like traditional American ceramic vessels. So that's, that's where I show that influence is, is in decoration and not on the vessel itself. Yeah. So, so why do you think, why do you think that you've gotten more interested in, in these kind of like indigenous Florida designs? Do you think that working, you know, in the job that you have now, especially working at Crystal River you're working at a site where there's all this amazing pottery that people made in the past. Has that inspired you in the work that? Oh yeah. More recently? Yeah. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Now in my time in doing field archeology, span I, that's when that started because I would find decorated sherds. I was kind of blown away by these, these markings that the native Americans were making here. And then I started doing research, but certainly the second I started working at crystal river and started seeing um, the types of pots that were found there. And then I, the, work that the weed and island tradition and things like that my profession became sort of an open door to trying to learn more about those from like an artistic perspective mm -hmm. and I'm also also want to be like a big advocate getting getting information about these pots and how amazing they are out to the, the greater art ceramic world because it, it's the art ceramic world is extremely um Asian centric is focused yeah. on ceramics from Asia some ceramics from you know, the desert Southwest, everybody loves the membranes pottery. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do too. It's beautiful, but there was like amazing work being done here in the Southeast. And it's just completely, it's so marginalized that it's not even like, <laughs> it doesn't even, it's not even a question, right? There's yeah. Do you ever, no do, idea. Yeah. Do you ever do like, I mean, I know you've done presentations for artists for, you know, like other ceramic artists and things. So what is the reaction to to some of those contemporary artists when they see some of those like Weed and Island pots? I mean, they're amazing. Like the designs are amazing. Like the ones with the cutouts or like the, like the ones in the shapes of animals. I mean, they had no idea that Native Americans, one, the, the, <laughs> it continued in this, on a professional level, this always amazes me that people didn't re realize that there was Native Americans in Florida, period. Yeah. Um, but, but also from an art ceramic world that they were making ceramics. Like people had no clue, no idea. Mm -hmm. I, I can't tell you how many times, oh, I had no idea that Indians in Florida made pottery. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yep. <laughs> and it's some of the most beautiful ceramics in the world, as far as I'm concerned, that were yeah. being made. And you know, they don't have a lot of the flashy color. It's not the high temperatures that you're getting in in places like Asia. And, you know, they don't have access to the porcelain and things like that. But the quality and the refinement and the designs and on the surfaces are as complex and as beautiful as any pots I've seen anywhere in the world. And so I've tried to be a big advocate for kind of getting out that information too in the art ceramic world. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how successful I am, but... You know, I don't know. Well, and some of the design, especially like the Whedon Island period designs look very contemporary. I mean, there's some pieces that you could probably put in like a contemporary art museum and mm -hmm. people wouldn't necessarily even know that it was like a thousand years old. 
as an example, um, there's this artist, Simon Levin. He's a good friend of ours. Um, he posted some picture of these um, paddle stamped cups that he made with little basically check stamped yeah. pots. And I, I messaged him. I was like, oh, check this out. And I send him a picture of a, a shirt. And he's like, well, where did you get that? And I was like, that was, that was, <laughs> <my> pot break? <laughs> I was, like, that was made a thousand years ago in Florida. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and he's like, oh, I had no idea. And, you know, and human beings have been carving wooden paddles and stamping it into clay all over the planet. So it's, it's not surprising that he was influenced by that from other places. But I really wanted to kind of get across this idea that, you know, the work that was being made here in Florida is just as amazing as some of the work being made in Asia. But I think it just shows what a kind of interesting, like, intellectual position that you're in, that you are an archaeologist, you've been doing archaeology for, you know, years and years and years, finding, you know, this pottery that people made in the past, but then you're also a ceramic artist in making your own objects out of clay and kind of um, bridging those kind of two worlds together. So you can look at the archaeological stuff with the eye of a maker and someone who makes pots and understands what goes into that, actually. And then you can look at those kind of contemporary objects and understand some of the um, really ancient traditions that those come out of that the artists themselves might not even be kind of aware of. So it's weird, though, because I don't really feel a part of either world really fully, you know, because I have one foot in each the fine arts ceramics world and then the world of Florida archaeology. And so, you know, I'm not immersed in one discipline or one field or whatever, like completely. And so I think that puts me in a little bit of a difficult place though sometimes, and it makes it kind of awkward, but it could just be my, (laughs) what do they call it? Imposter syndrome talking. (laughs) Well, I think that definitely of all the archaeologists I personally know, I mean, you do bring something to it that not many people do. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's so many archaeologists who, um, you know, they do like experimental archaeology where they're trying to like replicate how did people do this in the past, which is great and very interesting and can tell us a lot. Um, But you're starting from a level where you already have, you know, all this knowledge about how to make pots. You don't have to necessarily start at Mm -hmm. zero like you Mm -hmm. can look at something and say like oh this piece even if it's not native american ceramics like even if it's like you were looking at like historic ceramics or Mm -hmm. whatever you know like a place where a kiln where people were finding like firing historic ceramics you could look at a piece and say like oh this pot broke in the kiln because of this Mm -hmm. that or the other or this Mm -hmm. is that you know because you have that that knowledge yeah (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So given that, like, what do you think that archaeologists can learn from the art world or makers in general in regards to kind of looking at material culture? What are archaeologists missing out on? Besides pronouncing Mayalica correctly, it's (laughs) Mayalica, not Majalica. (laughs) Um, That's a really good question. The human being, I think, um, 
I think archaeologists focus very much, and rightfully so, and I would never argue with somebody that knows more about it than I do, but I think the tendency is to focus on the pot, how it was used, because that can tell us, you know, more macro things about culture and less so on the process of how this person became a potter, what, what, he, what he had to go through to learn this discipline, to learn this skill. I know Trevor Duke is doing some, some interesting work mm-hmm. on things like that now. That's what blows me away about finding sherds is that mm-hmm. I know, like you said, like I know the process that it takes to get from a raw clay in the ground to a finished piece. And it's, it's this huge complicated process and there can be failure like a million different ways along yeah. the way including right up to the very end when you think you have a beautiful, finished, gorgeous piece and, (laughs) you know, you knock the end of it on the kiln or something like that and it's broken and ruined. You know, it's like, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. That's, that's a really hard question to answer. I think you're right. I mean, I think the kind whatever, depending on the kind of archeology, span like. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part too. Yeah. I mean, if it's just, if it's like a CRM project, you know, like a survey or whatever, you know, you end up with just like a table, like I have this many of, this kind and this many of that kind and like that's it yeah and the way that those types are kind of divided and broken up like i don't know just sometimes somewhat arbitrary as well yeah i guess i you know i think another thing is that there are still a lot of artists that are making in traditional methods um not necessarily digging their own clay in florida and forming pots and making making replica prehistoric florida pottery but there's a lot of contemporary art ceramic artists that are working pinching that are working coils um, that are digging and harvesting their own clay Mm -hmm. Um, and so i think there's a literal there's literal information that an archaeologist could glean from like contemporary ceramic artists, like they could to truly understand and depthly how some of these people created these work. They could go shadow a potter that's doing something or working in a similar way, you know, to understand that process. Yeah. So you kind of touched on it a little bit, but, you know, given all that, do you feel a connection to those earlier makers through what you do? especially with your knowledge as an archaeologist and then your like knowledge as an artist? Yes, I do feel a connection, but I don't feel that I'm in that lineage. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? I feel a connection to this ability to manipulate this material, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I don't even think I'm a particularly good potter I don't, my my hands don't work as well as um my eyes do like <laughs> and that's a big thing with ceramic artists is that their their eyes tend to be way ahead of what their hands are capable of and you know i've been making pots for a long time so i think yeah i i do have a connection in that i understand the material but i don't have a connection in those motivations that drove them to make ceramics and even across the different people that you interview, their motivations and inspirations are very, very different mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I guess that comes with the territory. How do you like to think about people using your the objects that you make? I mean, do you want them to be just 
an everyday thing? Do you want them to be like kind of special or more on the ritual side? Mm -hmm. Like you were talking, who are you talking to? Adrian. Mm -hmm. She was talking about, you know, her work is, you know, she intends it to be a little bit more special and more towards the kind of like ritual or, you know, like the fancy tea service or that sort of a thing. How do you see your work and how, how people should kind of look at it or use it? Yeah. I asked that pretty much, I think of everybody and everybody said um, with a few exceptions like Adrian, that they wanted folks to be using this work. I think Adrian basically said that, but she understands that people don't <laughs> in some situations. Yeah, um, hers is like just, yeah, different kind of functions, I guess. Right, right, right. Really unique functions. The user utilizing this piece to however they're going to use it is part of the art. Even if it's like, you know, like I hope people wouldn't drink whiskey every day, but if you do, you know. <laughs> If you do, you if well, I yeah. definitely use one of your pieces every day, whether it's like my, this is my like go-to coffee mug for sure, or the black clay bowl, or any of those things. So thank yeah. you for making the cool stuff that I can use and <laughs> thank you for using it thank you i love going and seeing um when we come over and we see like that's what's really interesting is seeing how my work has changed over time and when you have folks like you that have been collecting it for a while and have work that's been from really early stuff like that stuff you found at Bracant and st pete <laughs> super old stuff, more than a decade old, <laughs> you know, seeing that and kind of mentally comparing it to the kind of work that I make now. And it's really cool to see. Sometimes it's embarrassing and sometimes I want to accidentally knock it off the counter. But <laughs> <laughs> So do you think that the things that you make have agency over the lives of others? Mm. Do the objects you make have agency? I guess they do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I knew that you were going to ask that question and I've been thinking about it almost endlessly. And, <laughs> I'm glad um, I actually asked it. What if I did it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, that's a hard question to answer, but yes, they do. I think they do. If I can say that about other people's work, I, I suppose that that's the case for my work too. <laughs> How does that make you feel? Like thinking of it as an artist, but also an archaeologist. It makes me feel that like all the things we've talked about on the podcast, you know, these inanimate objects on their own don't have a power over us. It's what we imbue on those objects that kind of gives it that agency. And so if we're providing this for lack of a better word, love that we're putting on these pieces. And then that's pushing it back, refracting it back, if mm -hmm. in using a ceramic term. It, it makes me feel great. Because if all those, all those cups that you have are portals to the people that you care about, then every cup of yours that's sitting on like a shelf somewhere is like a portal to you, to someone who cares about you too. Aww. <laughs> That's way better than me physically being in the kitchen too. Yeah, that would be weird if you were just sitting on a shelf in someone's kitchen. <laughs> that sounds like a funny video to make. <laughs> like, <laughs> hey guys, <laughs> every morning. <laughs> well, thanks, Nigel. That was fun. Well, thank you, Becky. I appreciate you chatting with me about this. Yeah, it was fun. 
Well, thanks listeners. I hope you enjoyed our conversation as well as this mini episode series. I think Nigel did an awesome job putting it all together. I really enjoyed listening to all his conversations. Thanks as always to my co-host, Nigel Rudolph of FPN Central. If you would like more information on Nigel's work, as well as the work of his brilliant wife, Cheyenne Rudolph, you can go to RudolphClayStudios.com or find them on the Insta at RudolphClayStudios. Just please don't buy any of the things I have my eye on. I'm just kidding. Buy all the stuff. uh, Check out all their cool work. Thanks to the University of South Florida, where Nigel and I um, actually work, as well as to the Florida Public Archaeology Network and to our colleagues across the state. For more info on FPAN, go to www.fpan.us. Thanks, as always, to Have Gun Will Travel for the use of their song, Silver in the Age of Opulence. Check them out as well. Um, Show them some love at hgwtmusic.com have an idea for an episode comment or feedback for us dad joke you'd like to share whatever it is give us a holler at materialistspodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you thanks so much and we will catch you all on the flippity flip bye I was reading something today and it was about like historians like thinking about the time we're living through and apparent apparently they have like they call these like like a cool era not like temperature <laughs> cool but it's like cool to read about in hindsight but like really f- sucks for the people who have to live through it like at the time <laughs> yeah i mean but i don't remember any other time in history where it was like, like you can't say that I couldn't say, wow, the Great Depression, that sure sounded f- cool. Like, you know. Yeah. Or like the, like the fall of Rome or <laughs> yeah. like. Yeah. A lot more people Like dying. the height of the civil rights era. Like, it's inspiring because you know how it turned out. But like. Yeah, that's it true. It equally could have gone like equally bad. And even that those books are those history books are going to have to be rewritten too because it's only a fraction of it succeeded yeah know? exactly and so we're, we're in this it only got like this much and we still have like this much that and that really kind of points to what's happening now though because the only way those little bits those steps forward happened is because people took to the streets you know? yeah that's absolutely. the only reason that it happened yeah, and put their like bodies on the line and Yeah.